from the book of John, chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. I don't, I don't think I need to tell you that our passage for this morning uh, contains perhaps the most famous verse in all the Bible. Many of you know that, and that is John 3.16. Um, it's found on, well, just about everything, right? <laughs> you, you can find it on billboards, you can find it on bumper stickers, you can find it on tattoos, on coffee mugs, on t-shirts. You can find it on the, the black eyeliner stuff that that football or baseball players put on their faces. You find it just about anywhere, John 3.16. And, and so a unique risk faces anyone who would preach this passage in an American church context. And that risk is that many who know these words backwards and forwards are at risk of concluding they don't need to hear what I'm about to say. That's the risk. And internally, though you might never say this to my face, we can think, I already know that verse, Pastor. Tell me something new. Well, if that's you, friend, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, okay? Because I've been there and thought that. Oh, I've already heard. I've heard 10 sermons on this passage. Well, Well, I want you to be very careful what you wish for. Acts 17, verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. You realize that's not a compliment from Luke. And the reason it's not a compliment is found in Jeremiah 6, verse 16. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. I, I would argue John 3.16 is, is common, it's, it's famous in that sense, ubiquitous, for good reason. It marks out the ancient path of salvation. The good way that leads to life, or, or as Martin Luther once said, John 3.16 is, is the Bible in miniature. And if you're not a Christian, friend, uh, much of what you're going to hear me speak today, say today, uh, may be very new to you. 
Okay, you, you need to pay attention. <laughs> I want you to listen carefully. But, but if you are already a follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to remember this. You need these words just as much as your non-Christian friends. Just as much, okay? Listen, because the greatest need in your soul, Christian, is not to hear a gospel you have never heard before. I'm going to say that again. The greatest need in your soul, Christian, is not to hear a gospel you've never heard before, but rather to savor and appreciate anew the tremendous significance of the gospel you have already believed. That you might continue to what? What, what, what do we need to do if we're going to continue to love Jesus and trust Jesus and follow hard after Jesus all the days of our life? What do we need to do? We need to remember the gospel and not lose sight of that and not say, oh, oh, pastor, friend, give me something new. Tell me something I've never heard before. Tickle my ears. Well, the reason I get kind of worked up about this is, is because my job as a pastor, and by the way, what you should require of every man whoever preaches God's word to you in this pulpit long after I leave the scene is not to tell you something new, but rather to remind you and delight with you in something old, in what is of first importance. Listen, the life-changing, sin-shattering, joy-sustaining, hope Securing, church uniting, evil overcoming, glory revealing news of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is the gospel, friends. That, that's, that's the good news. And that is what this church, by the grace of God, has been built on for over 30 years. I didn't start that. And I'm praying that we stay that way. And so if you've heard this a hundred times, your need to hear it again, I would argue, has only increased. And that's why I'm eager to preach this passage, not just because of my forgetful soul needs it, okay? I do. But, but because it stands among the, the Alps, as it were, in John's gospel. A, a place where we get to see Jesus. God the Son incarnate in, in all his saving splendor. Because here, John, the author of the gospel, confronts us with, with an immovable fact. I'd summarize the whole passage this way, that, that the life we need is not found in the sin that we savor, but in the Son that God sent. The life you need isn't, isn't found in the sin that we savor, but in the son God sent. And we desperately need to remember that, friends. Today and tomorrow and, and every day until we, we come back next Sunday and, and remind each other of that all over again. Life isn't found in the sin we savor, but in the son God sent. And John points us in that direction by explaining two things. The nature of God's invitation to life in Christ, the nature of the invitation, and secondly, the reason for our resistance to it. Okay, so that's what we're going to look at this morning. It given, life isn't found in the sin that we savor, but in the son God sent, 
let's think about what, what is this invitation to life that we receive in Jesus? And then why are we so often resistant to that invitation? Okay, point number one, the invitation of the gospel is salvation through faith in Christ. Focusing here on verses 16 to 18. Um, if you're familiar with the context, don't assume you are, but, but verse 16 picks up on the heels of Jesus' conversation with a Pharisee named Nicodemus in verses one to 15. And his whole chat with Nicodemus, which is what Josh was preaching on last Sunday, is about our need to be born again. Okay, for, for the spirit of God to grant us the gift of new life through faith in Jesus, new spiritual life. And that spiritual life that we need, John says, is only possible if the son of man, one, one of Jesus' favorite self-designations is, is lifted up, verse 14, 15, or crucified. Why is that necessary? Why, why does Jesus have to be crucified? Well, because forgiveness is costly. Right? It's always costly. And unless someone pays the penalty for our sin, for your sin, you're going to have to pay for it yourself. And the wages of sin is death. And that's exactly what Jesus experienced for us. But, but as John transitions here in verse 16, the, the question he's answering is, it's kind of implied, why would Jesus do that? right? Why would the son of man be lifted up, crucified? Why, why must he be lifted up? That's a really good question, right? Because as disobedient sinners, none of us deserves for Jesus to pay the price of our redemption. And, and so verse 16 gives us the answer to, to what appears to be, there's some debate over this, but appears to be the, the beginning of John's own reflection, meditation on Jesus' words. Verse 16, why must he be lifted up? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Okay, think about that. The, the reason God the Father sent the Son into the world to live for us and die for us is because he loved us. Now, I'm well aware in a context like this, to many ears, that is a total commonplace, including many non-Christian ears. Total commonplace. Of course God loves us. Pastor, you just keep saying stuff I already know. <laughs> of course God loves us, right? God loves everyone, doesn't he? Well, not in the Jewish mindset of the time. Okay? No one would have blinked if John had said, for God so loved his chosen people, Israel. But to say, for God so loved the world, the whole thing? Well, that was scandalous, friends. That was scandalous. That, that shattered ethnic confines. That, that blew out the Jewish borders of their understanding of God's activity. You won't find that in other Jewish writings of the time. God so loved the world. And John tells us here that the father didn't send his son just because he loved Israel, right? Right? 
He sent his son because he loved the world. Sinful humanity united in opposition to the rule and authority of God. I I love how J.C. Ryle describes this. The love here spoken of is not that special love with which the father regards his own elect, his people. But that mighty pity and compassion with which he regards the whole race of mankind. Its object is not merely the the little flock which he has given to Christ from all eternity, but the whole world of sinners without any exception. There is a deep sense which God loves that world, including every ruthless, genocidal, dictator that's ever walked this earth. All whom he has created, he regards with pity and compassion. Is that your heart, friend? Is that your posture toward the world or do you scorn the world? and hate the world, and and do your best to stay away and keep your kids away from the world as much as possible. Praise God, he doesn't follow suit in those ways. Right? Not not then, and not now, okay? It's not because the world is lovely. Let's make that clear. There's nothing beautiful about a world filled with sinners in the eyes of a holy God. We, We don't deserve his love, nor, listen, does God love us because he was constrained by some sort of external standard that required him to love us despite our enmity toward him. Oh, well, you know, Love is God, so God has to love. Not at all. Not at all. Why not? Because God is the standard friend. And in the absolute freedom and mystery of his will, he chose to love us. Okay? To to hold forth a gift of salvation and life to those who merit nothing but death. And so John is confronting us with this reality that the magnitude of God's love is seen in the magnitude of his gift. Because fueled by holy love, in the freedom of his will, God the Father gave us his only son. His most precious possession, if I I could dare use that word of God, the gift of himself. And you will find no greater proof of God's love for you, friend, than, than the incarnation of the son of God to earth and his life and death for you. You know, what do we say? We say things like this, Lord, how can you love me when you haven't done X? Fill in the blank. To which the father replies, in Jesus, my child, I have given you immeasurably more than X. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Because the father didn't send the son, 
Let's make this clear. Because he had to. But once the eternal God chose in love to make a way for our redemption, there was no other option because no other redeemer would suffice. And so as the second Adam, Jesus came to obey for us. And as the spotless lamb of God, Jesus came to die for us. Why? Look back at John 3. Why would he do that? That purpose, whoever believes in him. Whoever believes in him, whoever trusts in him, whoever relies on Jesus to deliver you from the judgment of God you deserve and to give you the joy of relationship with him, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I, I want you to listen very carefully to me, very carefully to me, friend. Because whether you're a Christian or not, this is true. The greatest spiritual need in your life is not how to become a better you. Ever. And I don't care how many books in Barnes and Noble try to convince you of that. The greatest spiritual need in your life is deliverance from the wrath of God on account of your sin. That's your greatest need. Always. None of us are good enough. Okay, none of us merit God's approval. We're, we're all sinners. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn us. He came into the world to what? To save us, right? In our sin, we, we don't need Jesus to come and condemn us. What, what are we in our sin? What does John say? We are condemned already, right? That, that's our baseline. That's our starting point. Jesus came in the world to save us, which means we have a choice to make. Will you trust Jesus or not? Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Did you see a repeating word in that verse? It's just like, do you see it, right? What is it? Believe. Whoever believes. What, what you believe about Jesus, this is what John is saying, and how you respond to Jesus is not a morally neutral issue. Okay? It, it will either be the ground of your condemnation if you reject him or the ground of your salvation if you trust him. There's no third way or option C. There's no, I'm not sure what to make of him, but I guess we'll find out one day, won't we? I mean, that, that sounds maybe humble. That, that sounds intellectually sophisticated, honest, but maybe it even sounds wise, but, but friend, that is not saving faith. Okay, that's, that's skepticism that fails to take Jesus at his word and trust him accordingly. And, and I want you to remember, if we go there, you're not dismissing a religious figure. You are rejecting God himself. And on that basis, you stand condemned right here, right now, but before the throne of God's majesty, right now. But you know, maybe you're in process. 
okay? Maybe you're, you're wrestling with what Jesus has to say. And, and I want to say this to you very directly, including those of you watching online. If that's the case, you are in the right place. You're in the right place because this room is filled with people who want to help you wrestle with what Jesus has to say and are eager to help you with that. But what I want you to remember at the outset and every step along the way is that there are only two categories of people in this world. Either you believe in Jesus or you don't. Every moment of our life is in one of those two categories. And saving faith, belief in Jesus, isn't isn't an openness to whatever he has to offer, okay? It's wholehearted reliance. If you're playing poker, it's going all in. That's what John means by whoever believes. Not, Not just whoever believes Jesus exists or whoever believes he has some good things to teach us. Whoever believes what? In him. Whoever entrusts themselves wholly and completely to him. to to deliver you from the death your sins deserve. And if you've done that, Christian, then take heart. Seriously, because right now in this moment and for the rest of your life, what does John say? What's the Lord promise you? You are not condemned. Think about that. The, The judge of the universe who knows all things and and sees all things, the the eyes before whom every thought is revealed and every action is visible and exposed. The eyes whose opinion matters most before his eyes. Christian, you are not guilty. But, But Matthew, you... You don't know what I've done. You don't know how many times I've done it. I mean, if I were God, considering the depths of wickedness in my thoughts and my actions in my nature, Matthew, I'm just being honest, I would condemn myself. Well, you're right about one thing, friend. God knows. God knows more than you do. But you have forgotten one little word. And that is a very important word, a word which trumpets good news over the shattered wreckage of your soul. And it's found in verse 18. And it is the single word, whoever. Whoever reminds you there are no exceptions to God's invitation. Whoever reminds you there are not distinctions or levels in his promise. Okay, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've stumbled and fallen, no matter how bad other people think you are or how bad you think you are or know you are, friend, if you, if you believe in Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, God says you will never perish. God says that. Who are you, Christian, to say, I know what God has said, but I know better. Do do you realize it feels humble, but so often what, what is 
driving our incessant condemnation is pride. Because we think, well, I know what God said. But you know, he's like JV. My verdict, myself, Supreme Court. Again, J.C. Ryle adds, without faith, there is no salvation. But through faith in Jesus, the vilest sinner may be saved. The vilest sinner. And you maybe you say, well, how can that be so simple? <laughs> Believe in Jesus? <laughs> Are you kidding me? And the vilest sinner, I mean, where's the penance? Where, where's at least the modicum of an attempt of making this hot mess that you created right? Well, it is that simple because the father who loves you is that good friend. And the sacrifice of the son who died for you is that sufficient. And Holy Spirit that preserves even a mustard seed of faith in your soul is that strong. And God knows that if any part of your salvation were left to you, what would happen? The whole enterprise would crumble and fall, right? And so in Jesus, he has done it all and paid it all and accomplished it all and guaranteed it all that you, friend, might be saved through him. And so the invitation of the gospel, our first point is what? Salvation through faith in Christ. And I want to remind you that if you receive that invitation, not just once, but every day of your life, the eternal life God promises to, to all who believe in Jesus is immeasurably more than a life that never ends. Now, I was thinking about that this week. Some of you are suffering in this room. If, I, if somebody came up to you and just said, hey, I'd like to offer you for a limited time special, a life that never ends. <laughs> You'd be like, because <laughs> I hate my life. I'm suffering. I, I wish my life would end, but I know that would be wrong, so I can't end it, but I just, I wish it would end. Friend, eternal life, the reward of faith in Jesus is immeasurably more than a life that never ends. It's the best life imaginable because it's life with Jesus, okay? John isn't just talking about enjoying his presence in heaven when we die or, or Listen, the unspeakable blessings of the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus returns and we have resurrection bodies. Can, can I get a shout out for that day, right? But he, he's talking about the life that we have in Christ right now, too. You realize that? The, the spiritual hope and help we experience in relationship with God right now in the midst of all our troubles is a taste of eternal life. And yet, the fact that God holds out to us in Jesus, such an incredible invitation, does not mean that all of us receive it. Why, why not? Well, have you ever received an invitation to a party or an event that you know you're supposed to go to? But... Not one part of you wants to go to that thing, right? And so we kind of like it if it shows up as an Evite rather than an expensive 
stationary mailed invitation because then we feel a little less guilty about just letting it sit in our inbox for a week or three or four. Oh yeah, I forgot to RSVP to that. Bummer. You know what I'm talking about, right? We're just kind of looking for an excuse to bow out. Well, friends, when it comes to the invitation of the gospel, we are not waiting for an excuse. We are born with one. We're born with one. Think about this, point number two. Our resistance to the gospel is rooted in our refusal to repent. Verses 20 to 21. You know, we, we, we can seize. I think some of us are really good at this. We can seize upon all manner of intellectual objections to Christianity. Can I, I'm tracking with this, right? You know, why is there only one way to God? How could a good God allow so much suffering and evil in the world? Why? why? Here's a really good question, for real. Why do so many Christians live hypocritical lives? Those are good questions, okay, for which the Bible, hear this, has really good, solid answers. But ultimately, it isn't a query in the mind, friend, that, that presents the most formidable obstacle to the gospel. It's the affections of your heart. The things that we love and and cling to instead of Jesus, thinking they will satisfy our souls. Our resistance to the gospel isn't a mental problem, as if there's just not enough evidence for Christ's claims. It's a moral problem. We simply don't want to submit to his authority. Verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light is coming to the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and, and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Well, we, we know from John 1.5 that the light, it's kind of getting poetic here, so don't, all you chemistry students, don't lose me, all right? The light in verse 19 is Jesus. So when Jesus came into the world, announcing the gospel of salvation through faith in his name, why didn't everyone come to him? Why didn't everyone believe in him? Why why didn't everybody just say, yeah, Jesus, you're right. I'll trust and follow you. Well, it's the same reason everybody doesn't do that today. What's that? We simply don't want to. Right? We don't want to. And and John makes an an astute connection in these verses, okay? He he points out that that our minds, track with me here, our our minds are not objective when it comes to evaluating spiritual truth. Something far more subjective is at work influencing our minds and shaping what we decide is true or false. And that's called the affections of your heart. What you love So so what we decide is true, that's true, I know it, is influenced by what we love. And what we decide is false, that's false, I know it, is influenced by what we hate. Let me give you two quick examples, okay? If you love the praise of men, you will give way too too much credence to your admirers and your critics alike right? Buying in to to a really twisted, distorted view of yourself. 
Okay, here's an illustration for, for all the teenagers out there, okay? Let's say you love spending time with your friends more than anything else in the world. Been there, felt that. If they're all going to a movie, but your parents say, uh, no, claiming it's too violent, are you going to believe them? Of course not, right? Of course not. You're immediately going to start arguing that your parents are completely wrong about the movie and that it's not too violent at all. Well, have you seen the movie? No, but that doesn't matter because I know it's not too violent. Well, except you don't actually know because you haven't seen the movie. But that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter one lick because you want to spend time with your friends. And so you will choose, what do I want to choose is true about the movie? Not violent at all, that'll work. You choose that accordingly. And so look at verse 20. John's simply saying, we do the same thing spiritually. Okay, same dynamic. Why do we refuse to believe Jesus? To come to the light. It's, it's because we don't like Jesus. We hate the light, but, but why do we hate the light? I mean, in all the pictures we've seen, he looks kind of lovable. Well, because we love the darkness. We love our sinful ways. We, we like doing life our own way. And listen, if we're honest, deep inside, we know that coming to Jesus means agreeing with his assessment of our evil ways and submitting our will to his we know that. In a word, coming to Jesus requires repentance. And we don't like that kind of exposure one bit. Not one bit. We, we don't want to give up the evil works or the wicked things that Jesus says we shouldn't do because they're the very things we want to do. Right, so, so what do we do? We tell ourselves the reason we don't believe Jesus is because we don't think what he actually says is actually true or, or we're not completely convinced it's true yet. But in reality, friend, we don't believe Jesus because we don't like what he has to say. It, it's an assault on our pride. It's, it's a poke, more, more than that, like a nuclear bomb to our autonomy. And we hate that, so we refuse to believe him. We, we don't believe him because we don't like him. And we don't like him because we love our sin more. You, if you love the darkness, in other words, you'll hate the light. And if you hate the light, you'll never come to the light. So John's right. Our, our resistance to the gospel isn't rooted in a lack of evidence for the claims of Christianity. It's rooted in our unwillingness to repent. But it doesn't have to be that way, friend. Look at verse 21. We'll end with this verse. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You, you realize verse 21, it's the opposite of verse 20, except with one critical distinction. Look at this. Doing what is true, verse 21, is the opposite of doing wicked things, verse 20. Coming to the light, verse 21, is the opposite of hating and rejecting the light, verse 20. But where the non-Christian in verse 20 refuses Jesus, why? Lest his work should be exposed. The Christian in verse 21 
doesn't believe Jesus so that his works may be seen. Do you see that? He comes to the light. He, he believes Jesus. He does what is true. He follows Jesus with the end result that he and everybody else around him recognizes something, sees something. What's that? That every good work of faith in that Christian's life has been accomplished by the power of God. Think of it this way. The alternative to wickedness isn't self-righteousness. It's humble obedience empowered by the gospel. That's what John's saying. And so Christian, remember, there's only one explanation for why you came to Jesus in the first place. And there's only one explanation for why you're still trusting and following Jesus today. All of the works of faith that you've seen in your life, they're necessary, but they don't point to how great you are. They point to how faithful your savior is. Because every one of them, as John says in verse 21, has been what? Carried out in God. Enabled by God. Sustained by God. Directed by God. Think of it this way. The best t-shirt you could ever wear as a Christian says this. I am a trophy of grace. So remember that, Christian. Remember that. Lest, having come to the light and, and begun, this is good, potentially, to practice what is true, you start, this is not good, patting yourself on the back for all the wise choices you've made, which is the singular explanation for why your life is infinitely superior to all the poor sinners around you. That's a lie, friend. That's a lie. We, we are never at greater risk of falling from the spiritual heights we have attained than when we start thinking that we ascended them by our own willpower or scaled them by our own might. And it doesn't matter what, what mountain you have climbed, brothers or sisters. The explanation for your growth and your achievement isn't you. It's the Lord. So, so may, a, may a foolish unwillingness to repent not hold you back from receiving God's invitation of salvation in Christ Jesus. And, and having received it, may you give glory to no one else but him for all that has been accomplished in your life since the day you received it. John's point is that the life we need isn't found in the sin we savor. It's found in the Son God sent. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And, and if that has been told to you before, friend, then I say this, may it be told to you again and again and again until the Son returns and brings his people home. Because that's, that's the best news you could ever hear. That, that's the, the best story that's ever been told. And, and I'll let you in on a little secret, okay? By the grace of God, the, the longer you follow Jesus and the more you understand about the gospel and his love for us in Christ, the more amazing that good news becomes. That's God's heart. 
Which prompts me to ask, why should sinners like us ever receive a gift so precious? I I do not think we will ever fully understand the answer to that question. And so I urge you to say with me this morning, to God be the glory, great things he has done. Let's stand and sing. Amen.